suitability is almost equally a joke. I mean, if I'm under a suitability standard, I'm allowed to recommend something that's good enough. If I'm under a fiduciary standard, I have an obligation to at least seek what's best. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back. This week, Dan Moison joins us to discuss the many technical terms used within the financial planning profession. It's critical for new planners to know what all these terms mean and be able to correctly communicate them to clients. So Dan is here to help us decode everything. Up next, Dan and Hannah show you how to move beyond technical definitions and commonly misunderstood terms to move the profession forward. Well, thanks for being here, Dan. Well, thanks for having me. So I am so excited for this podcast because there are so many terms that get thrown around uh, the financial planning profession that I'm just not sure everybody has a really clear understanding of what what they mean. So that's why we brought you in. Dan, the answer man. Great. I'll do my oh, best. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> No pressure, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so let's start out with one of the big, everybody kind of has heard these terms, an RAA versus a broker-dealer. What are they and what the heck is the difference? Well, RIA actually has a legal definition. So some of the things that I know we're going to talk about don't. It's just kind of an understanding. Uh, but RIA is one that is actually defined in the law, the Investment Advisor Act of 1940. And it defines an investment advisor as any person or firm that for compensation is engaged in the business of providing advice to others or issuing reports or analysis regarding securities. So there's a, a, a few terms in there that need further definition. And the Securities Exchange Commission has uh, commented on it a number of times. One of the determinants for uh, whether you're engaged in the business of advice regarding securities is whether you're holding yourself out as an investment advisor. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, the staff has talked about uh, what is advice about securities. So they've, they've stated, this was just a few years ago, um, a longtime staff member named uh, Bob Plays put out a uh, thing um, about the SEC's view of regulation of investment advisors. Uh, so this is post-2008, Dodd-Frank, all that kind of stuff. So the SEC staff has stated in this regard that advice about market trends is advice about securities. Advice about the selection and retention of other advisors is advice about securities. Advice about the advantages of investing in securities versus other types of investments is advice about securities. Providing a selective list of securities is advice about securities, even if no advice is provided to any one security. <laughs> and asset allocation advice is advice about securities. Yep. So pretty clear. If you're telling people what they should be in, you should be an investment advisor which gets a little muddy because it seems like everybody in financial services is doing this, right? So a broker, a broker um, dealer, okay, a broker is, is basically an intermediary between a buyer and a seller. And a dealer is acting as a principal in a securities transaction. So they are, they are the sell side. Broker dealers, therefore, are in the business of transacting um, securities. They are either selling directly uh, the securities or the products, 
or they're acting as an intermediary between some other seller and a buyer. It's a very transactional thing. And the reason the broker-dealers uh, are not investment advisors is because there's a specific exemption under the law, the Securities Exchange Act of, of 1934. They're excluded from the Act, the 40 Act, the Advisor Act, if the advice given is solely incidental to the conduct of its business as a broker-dealer, and it does not receive any special compensation for providing the investment advice. So the broker-dealers have been hanging their hat on not being regulated as advisors on this, the incidental advice uh, exemption. So that, that's why there's been great debate about what's been happening from a regulatory structure uh, between advisors and broker-dealer worlds. Broker-dealers, uh, when originally, when this whole thing was set up, 1934, 1940 acts, uh, the broker-dealers was a transactional-based business. The investment advisors was the advice business. So the broker-dealers were facilitating the transaction. The advisors were figuring out what transactions needed to be facilitated. And so that's that's the the more plain English way to explain what's supposed to be a difference between an RIA and a broker dealer. Okay, we might need to dive into this a little bit more. <laughs> sure, um, there might be a few wrinkles on there. Right? I, I know, right? It, it, you made it seem so black and white, um, but so I'm well. Ironically, Hannah, it is black and white. It's in print. <laughs> it's in these laws. Now, what has what has happened over the years? is the, the brokerage firms have figured out quite clearly that people aren't that interested in just facilitating transactions. They're interested in, in what those transactions should be for themselves. And so over time, the broker-dealer re registered representatives, who are the ones uh, going out finding buyers to buy things from sellers, maybe even the, their own firm as a dealer, um, the registered representatives have gotten more and more into advice that in a lot of people's opinion is not incidental to those transactions. And as the Securities Exchange Commission did not uh, enforce in a hardline way that very clear distinction in my mind, it's gotten more and more muddied and that's why we're where we are today. I mean, it is, it is in the best interest of the public that they get advice about securities. Um, the fight's more about what standard needs, needs to apply. Because there aren't there aren't there are any brokers. I mean, do you, do you run into brokers that call themselves brokers anymore? Very rare. They're all Very financial rare. advisors or consultants or something. Yeah. I know a lot of financial planners who call other people brokers who don't call themselves brokers. But right. So as you were talking through this, I was thinking back to when I took all of the regulatory exams. So I took my Series Seven exam and then my Sixty Six and the CFP. Um, may, maybe not even in that order. And just how different that Series 7 exam was from, say, this, the uh, CFP exam. And the Series 7 was very focused on options trading. You know, how, what does a transaction of a bond look like? Who are the different players in having that bond issued? And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some correlations with just the exams that are required right. for the broker-dealer versus the RAA. Right. Now, if you were a CFP, you may not have sat for the Series 65 Investment Advisory Representative exam. Yep. Um, and that material is about the rules and regulations that apply to investment advisors. And it's a very different exam than, than the Series 7, and it should be. Uh, Broker-dealers are supposed to be doing something very different from what investment advisors are doing. 
at the broker dealer, I was listed as an IAR. It was an investment advisor representative. Correct. And so how does that kind of fit in with, I mean, because I was under a broker dealer providing investment advice. So therefore I was an IAR. Yes. And in fact, today, most people who would describe themselves as a financial advisor are in fact operating in a world um, where they're involved in a little bit of both broker-dealer activity and RIA activity. Um, They're either uh, duly registered, which means that they're operating under the, they're working for the broker-dealer and then they work for an RIA also set up by the broker-dealer of the ultimate entity there. So it's all FINRA regulated. And then some are hybrids where they have a series seven license they do the brokerage, and then they also have an RIA on their own as a separate entity away from the broker dealer, registered with the state or SEC. It's a hybrid. So most most people who are involved in financial advice these days do have ability to be in both worlds, which is nice on one end, and it's very confusing for consumers on the other if people aren't careful or nefarious. <laughs> For the people listening here who are part of a broker dealer and they're like, hey, now, like I have my friends in the RAA space and like I know what they're doing with clients. I know what we're doing with clients. And it actually is really similar. Yes. Is that possible to have it be very similar? Well, yeah, it's con- that's pretty much the way it is these days. Now, it, it is it wasn't originally conceived to be that way in the law, but it has evolved that way. And particularly in uh, the FPA community where people are are in the same room because financial planning is important to them, right? You're going to run into a lot of people who uh, have brokerage licenses, either as an employee uh, with a wirehouse or they're affiliated with an independent broker dealer that do wonderful financial planning um, for their clients. They behave as fiduciaries, even, even in the circumstances where they wouldn't be held to that standard if there was an issue. You'll see that all over the FPA. Um, it's it's certainly not anything evil by any stretch of the imagination to be brokerage licensed. It's just confusing to the public and the securities regulators have not done a very good job of making the people in the financial services business clear about their roles. So it's so interesting. I hear this debate going on a lot uh, with new planners about fee-only, fee-based, RAA, broker-dealer. All of this, all of this is going on, and really, the root of everything is coming down to regulation. Is that what I'm hearing? Regulation is important for a lot of reasons. It, to, to some degree, regulations can flat out prevent bad things from happening because good people don't want to be in violation of the law, right? Um, but the bigger, bigger reason that we need good regulations and we need them enforced properly is when the bad people, the bad guys do something, right? So imagine that if drunk driving were not illegal. Personally, I wouldn't be driving drunk anyway, right? But if drunk driving weren't illegal, the guy who does drive drunk, you can't do anything about it. So regulation... It does have a, a certain preventive quality to it, but the main thing is it gives a mechanism to deal with behavior that's not appropriate. So it, it's a it's a huge deal um, setting the standards of how we in the financial advice arena are supposed to behave. 
Yeah. So it, it, you know, it started, um, started with an erosion of the distinction, the blurring of the line is you'll, you'll hear it from, uh, called that often. Uh, and you know, late nineties, um, a thing called the Tully report came out. Tully was the uh, chairman of, uh, Merrill Lynch. And shockingly, it said that if people aren't paid strictly on transactions, they might not transact quite as much. So they uh, lobbied the SEC to put in a rule that allowed the brokerage services to be provided uh, for a fee instead of a commission, an asset-based fee, um, which you know on one level makes makes perfect sense. The problem, of course, was that there was no fiduciary standard attached to that. It was the presentation of these uh, fee-based uh, trading programs as advice that was particularly troublesome. Uh, Schwab had a version of it. They actually called advised investing. And then the small print said it wasn't investment advice. It was just brokerage, that the advice was incidental, which is kind of hard to understand what it's called, advised investing. Um, so after a number of years and going back and forth, the FPA actually sued the Securities Exchange Commission, and they ended up winning winning that, um, that suit. So that really, really gave a big swift kick to the debate about fiduciary. And shortly after that, that, that case result came down, we ended up with the financial crisis of 08 and out of that Dodd-Frank. And part of that was the SEC's ability to quote, harmonize uh, broker and advisor um, regulation, um, and impose fiduciary duties and all this other stuff. And the DOL decided it didn't want to wait for the Securities Exchange Commission. So it came out with its rule, which uh, just uh, recently yesterday, I guess, or day before uh, deadline passed there. So that thing looks dead. And now we have a new proposal from the Securities Exchange Commission. So the, the uh, regulation has devolved into something that's not, in my opinion, helpful to the public. Um, but the debate about what to do about it is is definitely raging more so now than it has at any point in my 28 years. You know, it's really interesting um, just the context that you just gave of this idea of the fiduciary. This has been decades long. Like, we're not new to this fight. <laughs> this has been going on for a long time. Right. And, and, and most people in the FPA community and listeners to this podcast, which I assume are mostly FPA uh, members, I mean, it kind of, it almost induces an eye roll and a shrug because it's such a basic underpinning of any profession that there be a fiduciary duty. And uh, most of the, um, you know, dual registrants and, and hybrid uh, folks out there that are involved with financial planning, they don't have any problem being held to a fiduciary standard. They conduct themselves as if they're going to be held to that standard every day. It's just, it's just the proper way to deal with clients. It's a very good way to conduct your business. You don't get into a whole lot of hassle if you're you know, constantly focused on what's in the best interest of the client and acting accordingly. So it's it's from from my perspective, it's not a it's not a, a boots on the ground problem. It's a it comes from a much higher level within the organizations that are lobbying to keep the muddy the waters as muddy as possible. That line as blurred as possible, and, it, and it's a shame. Let me see if I can summarize this. I may need help with doing this. <laughs> Because there's so much here. Sure. So we have the registered investment advisors and that or the registered investment advisor. 
And that is if you're in the act of providing really any investment advice. Yep. And then you have the broker dealers who on the broker dealer, the broker dealer company is responsible for actually transacting buys and sells on investments. So that could be individual stocks and bonds. It could be private placements. It could be a lot of things. And so for both of these, there are investment advisors that work for them and that they can do a lot of the same things. It's just really muddy as to it's muddy to the public as to who does what, because there is so much crossover between, you know, you can have a great financial planner in a broker dealer and in an RAA, or on the reverse side, you could have an RAA who does no financial planning. Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, RAA in its purest form has nothing to do with financial planning at all. It's simply investment advice. Yep. That was one of my questions when you, when you gave that definition, I was like, where's financial planning in there? Yeah. It's not in there at all. Yep. Uh, you know, but that's financial planning as a pursuit is much, much younger than the advisor act of 1940. Right. I mean, you're talking about Lauren Dutton and those guys, 1969 is really the, the genesis of it all. And College of Financial Planning, it's the early 70s. You, know, you did a wonderful, wonderful uh, job at retreat talking to Ben Coons and uh, Mr. Blankenship and Mr. Hughes and Mr. Walker. And I encourage all your listeners to go back and listen to that if they haven't. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff. So let's talk about another term that gets thrown out, wirehouses. How are wirehouses different than RAAs or, bro- or broker-dealers? Yeah. Well, or- originally, wirehouses, um, they were national broker-dealer organizations that were linked together through dedicated phone and telegraph lines, thus the wirehouse, mm-hmm. um, national, national organization. Uh, today, the main distinction between a wirehouse and other broker-dealer organizations, uh, most of the time, uh, people will draw the line based on the type of employment that their representatives um, are involved in. So a wirehouse typically has W-2 statutory employees. Uh, Independent broker-dealers are typically employing registered representatives that are independent contractors. They can very easily leave and go work for another independent contractor organization. Um, uh, so that, that's probably the, the, the leading, uh, definition. Um, if there was going to be another one, somebody might, uh, talk about, it would be the, the scope and size of the organizations, the wirehouses. I mean, there's, there's only, a, I can't remember. I think there's maybe three or four left, you know, Maryland, UBS, Morgan Stanley, um, those groups, uh, they also, uh, nowadays have more of a global uh, presence uh, than a typical uh, broker dealer would, so that, that would be a distinguishing factor as well. But in, 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 at, at its core, wirehouse is a, a broker dealer organization first and foremost. So another term, custodian. Can you say what a custodian is? Yeah, a custodian is just somebody that hangs on to somebody else's stuff, right? So um, in a financial planning uh, world. Uh, that's almost always a for investment accounts. It's a it's a broker dealer firm. Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, um, shareholder services. They're broker dealer organizations. Uh, custodian could be a bank, it could be an insurance company, but um, custodian is basically an organization that holds on to somebody else's belongings. They have custody of such. I always tell my clients whenever they write a checkout for their account, I'm like, you always 
write it to the custodian, never me. <laughs> it's always very right. important, you know, who actually is right. responsible for holding that money. I saw a thing on uh, somewhere. It does happen every now and then. Somebody starts asking questions about making checks out to Charles Schwab. I mean, how many <laughs> checks have made out to that guy? You know? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh. Okay, so another distinction or term that I hear thrown around is financial planner versus financial advisor. What's the difference between these two terms? Well, one way I describe the problem with titles and financial advisor in particular is when I come across somebody, meet somebody for the first time and they say, Oh, my brother-in-law is a financial advisor. I've been in the business for 28 years. I've been around a little bit. I don't know what the person does for a living. Hmm. I I have have my suspicions and I know the questions to ask to figure it out, but they could be working for a bank, brokerage, insurance company, a combination of those, all these different things. So financial advisor for most people doesn't necessarily mean anything specific. It just has something to do with money, right? Um, CFP board's been kind enough to change their uh, definitions of things and their new um, standards and update of those. And uh, I'll read those to you real quick. Um, You know, we joke that a financial planner is something that does financial planning. Well, what's the definition of financial planning? It's what a financial planner does. It's kind of circular doesn't really get you anywhere. That's not helpful. I, yeah. I'm, I'm willing, right. I'm willing to use the CFP board's definition. It's, it, it, it seems very reasonable that planning is a collaborative process that helps maximize the client's potential for meeting life goals through financial advice that integrates relevant elements of the client's personal and financial circumstances. So they are making a good distinction here between planning and advice. They actually talk about advice being a communication that based on its content, context and presentation would reasonably be viewed as a recommendation that the client take or refrain from taking a particular course of action with respect to the development or implementation of a plan, the value of or the advisability of investing in purchasing, holding or selling financial assets, investment policies, strategies, portfolio composition, management of assets or other financial matters selection and retention of other persons to provide financial or professional services to the client or the exercise of discretionary authority over the financial assets of a client. So to put that more in plain English, some of the, the differing factors between advice and planning is the scope. Planning is much broader. It planning relates to the integration of different elements of, of a family's uh, finances. Uh, coordination of those interests, whereas financial advice is, a little, is is much more much more narrow. My favorite definition, though, Hannah, that I've ever heard, which doesn't really explain it to clients very well, but for people who have been involved with financial planning, it resonates pretty well. And that comes from my my, my good friend Elisa Bowie. He says financial advice is is nice, but financial planning is magical. You know, it's so funny. I always say once people really experience financial planning, you can't go back. No, you can't. And it's, you know, one thing financial planning is not, is it's not charts and graphs. Yes. It's not a, 
It's not a thing. It is a process. It is a decision-making process. It brings in all of the relevant aspects of whatever whatever's going on in a person's finances. It's not a thing. It is a, it is a process. And it's the central process to making decisions. If you want to make the best decisions you can, you do that with a competent and ethical financial plan. How do you identify yourself? Yeah. So our firm, underneath the name of the firm on the website, it says financial planning and wealth management. And then under our names on the bios, it says financial advice. And that's a deliberate cop-out <laughs> to avoid having to explain to people why we're this, that, or the other. We just use all, all three. We're not real proud of that. We just haven't figured out what to do about it exactly. Um, mm-hmm. 99% of the time, though, I, I will describe myself as a financial planner. It's yeah. at the core of what I do every day. So the next term or terms that I've heard people um, throw out that there's confusion around what's the difference between an agent and a broker? Yeah. Uh, in most venues, an agent is somebody that represents the seller. A broker can either represent a buyer or can serve as a middleman between seller and buyer. So brokering a deal between two parties, you're in the middle, the middle person, uh, an agent though, almost, almost every, uh, place I've ever heard that term used. The agent represents the seller. Insurance is where you, yeah. you hear it most frequently. As I say, most frequently hear like insurance agent. So mm-hmm. we've talked about RAs, broker dealers, wirehouse. Can they sell insurance? Can they be an insurance agent on top of each one of those other elements? Can who? An RAA or a broker dealer? Sure. Yep. Absolutely. Get licensed and go for it. Uh, some states, most states, you have to be. You have your insurance license, and then you also have to be appoint, appointed with the insurance companies or, or work through an agent, a general agent that has uh, appointments with the insurance companies to sell their products. You're an insurance agent, agent of the selling companies. Uh, some states now have a thing called an unaffiliated insurance license where you can get licensed to give very specific advice about insurance without having to be in a sales position. There aren't many of them. We do have that here in Florida. It's a 215 unaffiliated license because very similar to investment advice, as soon as you start getting very specific about the workings of a particular insurance policy, you're probably crossing into the area of insurance advice where um, any, a state regular might want you to be uh, appropriately licensed mm-hmm. it doesn't that doesn't usually cover things like you need insurance you know you need more life insurance you should probably get two or three million of it that typically does not cross over into uh insurance advice in fact in florida the uh, needs assessment for how much life insurance a person needs isn't even part of the exam process to get licensed as an insurance agent so it's hard for the oh, wow. <laughs> regulator to say that's insurance advice but it's not on the exam so another term that we've already talked about a little bit is wealth management versus financial planning. From what I see, uh, most of the time, there's no difference whatsoever. Um, wealth management is just a term used to make it sound like it's a higher net worth deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, financial planning is, is, a, is a process, right? Start with the end in mind, what are the goals? 
what's going on, analyze what's going on, figure out what to do, you know, uh, shore up the weaknesses without undoing the strengths as much as possible. How does this integrate? What are the trade-offs? All that. That all applies to wealth management as well. Um, but it's, it's typically a higher net worth um, deal. Um, and sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes it's just, it sounds cool, so they use it for marketing. But to <laughs> me, there's, there's, no, there's no real, from what I can see functionally, the people who uh, claim to be wealth managers have the same basic process as the people who claim to be financial planners, or there are people like me that claim to be both. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want, we're yeah, the marketing yes. side of it. Um, okay, so another term that I hear thrown out a lot is discretion versus non-discretion or discretion versus solicited. What is the difference between between those terms? That has to do with permissioning to transact on a client's behalf. So if I have discretion over an account and I think that it's time to sell XYZ and buy ABC. I just do it. I've been granted the discretion to do that by the client. If it's a non-discretionary relationship, I've got to call a client and get permission to make that change. So it's really about um, permission, where the permission comes to uh, facilitate the transactions. Discretionary is going to be always, um, or should always be, at least it's, that's the SEC's interpretation, and that's um, what's pretty clear of the law, too. Discretionary um, arrangement is going to be an advisory ar- arrangement, not a brokerage. Non-discretionary could be either. And so that can fit, again, if you're in an RA, you can have discretion or non-discretion. If you're in the broker-dealer, you can have discretion or non-discretion. If you're a broker-dealer and you have discretion, that account is going to be deemed advisory by the Securities Exchange Commission, and it should be operated under the uh, advice advisory rules. So another two terms that we hear thrown out quite a bit lately are, and we've already talked about one of them, uh, fiduciary versus suitability. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The way I explain that is somebody who is under a suitability standard, which I I don't have the exact definition in front of me. I can't believe I didn't write that down. Um, But it's, it's one of those circular definitions, the financial planning, financial planner thing. I was joking about earlier, suitability is almost equally a joke. I mean, the definition of suitability is you have to provide recommendations that are suitable. I mean, it's just silly. Um, so the way I just, I try to describe it to, to people that they grasp pretty easy is if I'm under a suitability standard, I'm allowed to recommend something that's good enough. If I'm under a fiduciary standard. I have an obligation to at least seek what's best. I like that definition. You know, if I'm working uh, for a brokerage firm and they've come up with a list of, you know, 10 large cap value funds, here's a really simplistic example. Um, they've, and we've determined that the client should have a certain amount of money in large cap value. I can pick any of those 10 funds, including the one that pays me more because it's suitable. It's good enough. If I'm working for an RIA and they present to me, these are the 10 large value funds that you could use, I'm supposed to try to figure out which ones are actually best. Not that that's necessarily easy, right? So that's not a great example in that regard because a lot of large cap value funds look a lot like other large cap value funds. 
there may not be that anything that jumps out as a distinguishing feature, but there are, there are differences and they need to be looked at and there needs to be a process to go through to try to assess what that is. So it's the difference between being able to just go with good enough and having some responsibility to at least seek what's best. You know, I described it uh, when I was at, after leaving the broker dealer, you know, there was on the new account applications, there was a section of suitability that we had to fill out. And it was like 12 to 15 questions. I know a couple of years ago, more were added into that. So I always tell clients, you know, suitability was, you know, we just had to check all these boxes. And then if something bad happened with the investment, all they had to do is say, you know, were these boxes, did those boxes correspond with what this investment should be? Yes or no. And if it was yes, then I'm off the hook instead of, you know, that fiduciary standard of saying, okay, was this the best option for the client? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, my first, um, I first got the series seven back in 90, 1990, um, suitability was basically income and net worth. And there, those are the only two boxes you had to check. What's the income, what's their net worth. And if, if it was high enough on those things, it was deemed suitable. So, you know, I guess that, I guess that's evolved now if you had 15 boxes to check instead of just two. So, Well, you had to do a count. You, had, you know, is it income? Was it growth? Time horizon? Other outside, you know, outside assets? Liquid net worth? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's not. And the suitability standard isn't a horrible thing. I mean. It's something. Recommendations should be suitable. It's just not what I think people really are expecting when they hire a, quote, advisor of any type. And it's certainly not as sophisticated enough as it should be for a, a true fiduciary. Yeah. And the question comes down for the suitability. It feel, it seems to me to be the advisor, the planner's CYA versus the fiduciary, which is the client's CYA. The focus is different. Like, who are you protecting? Yeah, absolutely. That's the fundamental difference between being a true fiduciary and not. So let's jump into some other terms here, um, specifically as it relates around career paths. Um, especially for newer planners. So we have a lot of different terms that get thrown around. Paraplanner, associate planner, junior planner. What do those mean? I don't know. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Touche. We, it, who does it, know? It, 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 this Unlike the definition of investment advice, which is in the law somewhere, if you dig it out, Barna. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to vary um, from firm to firm. Um, the associate advisor, associate planner, junior planner, junior advisor. Uh, I you know nine times out of ten, that's just a a number I made up, but it's a it's a significant majority of the time when I see those types of titles. These are these are people who are supporting a lead planner person responsible for the relationship with the client on behalf of that firm. Um, and they are on a career track to move into a lead role with clients at some point in time. Uh, pair planner, sometimes that is true, is the same. Uh, and sometimes the uh, position remains more of an a administrative uh, career path and job duties. Uh, you know, all of those are extremely valuable to any firm. Um, but I, the one that the of the of those three, the associate, the junior, and the para, um, the one that is most likely not to be on a career track toward being a lead planner 
from what I can see is the pair plan. Well, this just gets down to, you know, if you're interviewing, you need to be interviewing the firm that you're applying for just as much as they need to be interviewing you. Oh, absolutely. It's tough though. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a dad and my daughter just graduated. She's starting grad school for physical therapy. She just started up in uh, Boston at Massachusetts general. And my son is uh, finishing his second year. You know, his dad, you want your kid to graduate and get a job. Right. So there's this, this whole, uh, whole, whole interesting uh, dance out there when looking for employment. And as an employer, I'm on the other side of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Megan's friends about, you know, what, what, what do I do at an interview? You hire people. What, what do I say? What do I do? And you want to be authentic and you want to be genuine, uh, but you also want a job. And as an employer, you know, you want to be authentic and you want to be genuine because you want it to be a good fit. And uh, sometimes you're not sure if you're getting authenticity on the other side. You're wondering if the person, are they after this job or are they after a job? There's a big difference. Mm. And, you know, luckily with people like uh, Caleb Brown and uh, other folks out there that have really ramped up the financial planning community's ability to conduct thorough um, hiring and, and, and um, processes. And, and I think we're, we're, we're doing much better much better on that. But yeah, that, I mean, you do need to interview the firm that you're applying to because if it's not a good fit, it's not going to be good for anybody. And it's expensive for firms to go through people. I mean, to have high turnover. It is. And, you know, it's scary on our end as employers too. You know, our, our newest employee here with me in Melbourne came out of the Western Kentucky program run by Ron Rhodes, a former advisor and another regulatory junkie um, out there, <laughs> a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, it, it, Ryan's a, a great guy, but you, you got to worry about it, is life in Melbourne, Florida going to be very different than life in Bowling Green, Kentucky? And, and it is. And, uh, you know, we were it was it was pretty clear after enough conversation that, you know, that's what he wants. He wants something different. He wants to, to live and work and, and develop in a, a new area. So th- there's a lot of risk on the employee side as well. As we're making these distinctions with these terms, we, we've talked about both of these. We have the DOL fiduciary rule versus the proposed SEC fiduciary. I don't, I don't even know if you call it the SEC fiduciary rule, but the SEC's oh, rules no, that are coming no, out. Oh, Hannah, no, <laughs> you can't call it the fiduciary rule. So the DOL rule basically is dead from what I can see. And that was through the Department of Labor. So that was right. specifically for retirement accounts and only spoke to those. Like end rollovers. Yep. Correct. Correct. Um, the SEC's new proposal is not a fiduciary rule. They go to great lengths not to call it that. Instead, they call it best interest rule or regulation best interest. So uh, on one hand, they're uh, purporting to be raising these standards for advice given by uh, broker dealers, uh, which is a fine thing, I guess, to be trying to do, but um, they're defining that new rule as they're not calling it suitability anymore. They're calling it best interests. So uh, I'm not a big fan of it at all uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, Number one is if you were to pull somebody off the street and ask them, what's the definition of fiduciary? If they had an answer, uh, it would probably be act in somebody's best interest. That's kind of the okay. shortcut. 
for what a fiduciary duty is. So calling a non-fiduciary duty best interest uh, and not fiduciary because you specifically don't want it to be fiduciary seems a little confusing to me. I'm confused just saying it right now here on this podcast. Um, so I can only imagine what that does to, to the public. Uh, and then you look at the samples they have for the customer relationship summary, their new form, a four pager you're supposed to give clients that they're proposing that you give clients. Uh, it's, it's just loaded with weird stuff. Uh, there's statements in there that I can't say cause they're simply not true. And, uh, it, 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 it goes to great lengths to, to present, uh, a brokerage account as very close to on par with an advisory account as far as the level of responsibility that the people have involved. And so, you know, you have the fiduciary and then suitability, which are different. And they're renaming suitability best interest, and they're talking about it as if it's very fiduciary-like. And I think it's extremely misleading. I think it's going to be more confusing than uh, anything rather than clarifying. So I'm working on a I'm working on like a, a dutiful, you know, I don't want to complain without trying to help the situation. And SEC has been kind enough to ask for our opinions about these things through uh, August 9th or something like that. So I will be working on my comment letter to them to share that with them. But it's, you know, it's a proposed rule. Uh, it could take a long time for anything to become final. Who knows where it'll go. Uh, but it's it's the next iteration of this whole discussion about fiduciary responsibility and regulation of financial services in general. So I just want to make note, you are, as Dan Moisen, CFP, are writing a comment letter to the SEC about this rule. Yes, anybody can. It's public comment. You should, too, if you have an opinion about it. They've asked you for your opinion, Hannah. Give it to them. Oh, I, oh I'm pretty good at throwing my opinion out, but I think that's, I think that's really powerful. And I think this, like, you know, I, I'm, I've been talking with all these young advisors and Dan, we're going to be at gathering together, uh, the next gen gathering, um, later this month. And this yes, topic has wait. come up. Oh, it's going to be so good. Um, the topic has come up about how do young planners become leaders in the field? Like, this is such a great way to do it. Like you said, every person listening to this podcast, the SEC has asked for your opinion. So you that can get correct. it. That is correct. Like that's and, really you know, powerful. Yes. And uh, one of the great values of being involved with an association is advocacy. And, yeah. you know, uh, an association of any significant size is going to have members that disagree about a lot of subjects. And from time to time, the association may put out a position that a member disagrees with associations have put out positions on various things that kind of I wasn't really quite sure about but um, you should never let that stop you from being involved with the association and active in formulating those policies you're, you're probably if you have not already um, there will be or is somewhere out there from FPA uh, I think I just saw the survey a couple weeks ago now that I think about it uh, what is your opinion about this SEC thing? What should we be telling the SEC? And so if you, if you don't want to take the time to craft your own comment letter, participate in that process and help the association do it. It's one of the, it's one of the things that we simply can't do on our own, yep. which is come together as a group to advocate. And Financial Planning Association is the one organization that is solely focused on financial planning 
as a profession and its advocacy. CFP board does a little of that, but CFP board's a quasi-regulator. They're not a membership organization. Well, and it's if we're really bought into this idea of financial planning as a profession, that's what the FPA is about. How can you be for the financial planning profession and not be part of FPA? I just don't. So there's a disconnect somewhere in there for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, now for those n- non-members, I'm not saying you're not part of the profession if you're not a member. I'm just I saying agree. you yep. should be a member. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's all. That's all. Hannah, I have a hard, hard time with this one because it never in a million years occurred to me not to join the association. Yep. Now, there was no FPA at the time. Uh, another great podcast <laughs> that you just did <laughs> was about the merger of the ICFP and the IAFP. I mean, that was wonderful. You know, I, I got my um, uh, CFP in 94. So I immediately joined the ICFP. And it wasn't because I did any kind of analysis of ICFP versus IAFP. It was because I was a CFP and there was an Institute for Certified Financial Planners. So don't you join that? I didn't even think about it. So I, I kind of have a hard time uh, sometimes relating to people that put a little bit too much thought in into it. To me, it's it's not expensive. Um, there's so many ways to get many multiples of that piddly little um, membership fee. And I, you know, I, I I started out with very little business. And a lot of expenses, and there's a lot of members out there who don't have a whole lot of money to throw around. I understand that I'm not, I don't want to poo-poo the, the, um, the membership fee too much. But of all the things that you can spend money on, um, you should very easily, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of uh, uh, diligence, get far more out of an FPA membership than what you're paying in dues. There's just a million ways to do it between the networking. The advocacy alone would keep me a member, advocacy. even if I never went to a meeting and talked to another member about anything in any way, shape, or form. That would be enough for yeah. me. Well, and it's just like you said earlier in this podcast, you know, we, you talked about, you know, there's a lot of really good advisors that are working in broker dealers and RA, and it's it's the next level up. It's that that higher level that's really, you know, making things money for the consumers. And that's where you know, the FPA's advocacy is how do we make this clear? How do we advocate for the consumers? How do we advocate for for the financial planning profession? Because like you said, the FPA is the only group where the end goal is financial planning. And so everybody else has a different thing that they're advocating for. There has to be a group advocating for financial planning. And if you're not part of FPA, you're not part of that larger conversation and things like the SEC proposal and, and things like that, like it really does matter that you're part of the group that's advocating for financial planning. Absolutely. So one of the questions that we had come up with is what does it mean to be an investor? I guess that's the one that we run into the, this definitional thing a lot with clients because they're used to picking up to the extent that anybody reads a newspaper anymore, um, you know, going online or something and the headline will be investors flee market on What's what's the latest thing? Trade war, right? There's a good one. Trade war fears. Yeah. And the Dow's down like 112 points or something, which is what point nothing, right? Um, but investors <laughs> are fleeing because they're nervous suddenly today, and then tomorrow tensions ease, and then they're flooding back into the market. So the media is really famous for using the term investor for anybody that owns a security or is thinking about it. 
Um, but it, and, you know, invest, you, you look up definitions and, you know, the dictionary and Merriam Webster and all that kind of thing. And, and you, you get things like long-term commitment, um, that kind of, kind of thing versus, you know, shorter term, quick profits, um, high, high risk. Uh, that's all more speculative. So really what the media is talking about more often than not are not investors. They're talking about traders, which is a form of, to me, a form of speculating, act, actively trading. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, co- a common point of confusion for a lot of people when they first start to explore working with somebody to help them and financial planning that they don't actually need to worry about whether some group of traders has fled the market today because of trade war fears and then flooded back in the next day. There's, there's a difference between information and knowledge and wisdom and what's relevant and what's practical. Uh, and that's part of what we do as, as financial planners is help sift through all that to what's really important to that particular, particular client. And it's, I'm still amazed at how many people just, you almost audibly sigh with relief that they don't have to follow financial news to be financially successful. You know, there's, there, there is yep. other ways to do it. They don't need to torture themselves with not understanding why things are happening on a day-to-day basis. Well, it's exhausting. Yeah. We call it noise. Um, yeah. our, our firm motto, which we've federally registered trademark, a sanctuary from the noise. Ooh. We got that. Uh, from talking to clients uh, and and asking them what are what are the things that you find most valuable, and you know this is a an example of where value comes from, right? You know you've you've had Vanguard and Morningstar with this advisor gamma. You know advisors can add X percent by doing these different things and all that. That, that that's true. You know we we can add add value there, but one of my favorite sayings um, I. I credit Elizabeth Chaton for it. She got it from somebody, but she's the one that um, said it over and over to me. And God bless her. I, I repeat it all the time, which is not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. And our clients told us one thing they really appreciate is we don't fill their inboxes with a lot of junk. It's relevant. It's timely. If you send it to us, we know it's important. Uh, and so most of them actually read our stuff. It's nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, but there's a lot of noise out there. And part, yeah. part of our role is, is sifting through that, focusing on what's actually important to this particular family and their particular circumstances. And that's where that magic Elisa talks about really comes out. You know, as financial planners, and we've talked about this idea of fiduciary being, you know, who are we protecting? We're protecting the client. Are we always doing what's in the best interest of the client? What do we as a profession need to do to make this clear for the client? Like what, what, what is a profession, our next steps? I think it's a continuation of what we've been doing, which is first and foremost, the, the true financial planning profession continues to actually deliver financial planning. And we keep working to get better and better and better at that. And I think that's key that that continues. So it doesn't, yeah. you know, you don't need lobbyists to do this. Each listener to this podcast in their own little corner of the world, in their cave, 
sitting across table or the couch or whatever you're doing, your beanbag chairs. I hear that's popular to do now, whatever, right? <laughs> Wherever you're set up talking with your clients or online, like we are now, that interaction, getting that family in a better financial situation where they know that they're organized and they're doing things to achieve their goals based on their resources. It's very focused on them, but pro pro providing that service you're doing a wonderful, wonderful thing. That alone is, is very helpful to the development of the profession because that's what the profession is all about. We have to deliver the goods. So that's all of us little foot soldiers out there with the boots on the ground. Got to, got to produce there. Yeah. The second thing we have to do is we have to continue to preach the importance of living by and being held accountable to a fiduciary standard. A value proposition that ends with, but don't hold me to that, is not a value proposition. It has no value at all. And so much of the financial services industry does that. Come see us. Trust us. We're your, we're your advisor. We're your helper. We're going to help you work. Build your plan. All this kind of stuff. And then the fine print is, but it's just buyer beware or suitability or some lower standard. We need to keep, keep pressing that. And we need to keep pressing with the regulators that financial planning is in fact different than investment advice, different than brokerage, different than insurance sales, different than banking, different than all that. It's its own process. It's its own uh, profession. It is distinct. And so what's going to happen, which has happened over the last uh, several decades and continues to happen is people will vote with their feet. And I think ultimately that's what, what changes the tide. The larger firms that are, are the corporate uh, powers that be is that business model continues to erode. They'll adjust, and I think they'll I think they'll eventually eventually come around. Either that, or some powerful center is going to his mom gets screwed over by somebody. It's going to get personal, and then you'll see something happen. But <laughs> I, I think it's it's more likely to be a, a general erosion. The marketplace will ultimately be the arbiter of all these debates. And the trend will continue that people will be seeking uh, true fiduciaries and real planning and all that. Type. But it all falls apart if we're not doing the job. So many thanks to Dan Moison for joining us and helping push the profession forward. And thanks to everyone who has been a part of making Next Gen Gathering 2018 in the FB Activate community so amazing. Thanks for listening. 